Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews. I'm Tim Malloy, and today I'm very happy to welcome Jim Cummings, the writer, director, and star of The Wolf of Snow Hollow. In the film, Cummings plays a deputy in a small mountain town with a wolf problem. Or is it a werewolf problem? Cummings has a lot of fun mixing comedy, horror, and mystery. And my favorite thing about The Wolf of Snow Hollow is that it's great by the standards of any of those genres. The funniest scenes come from Cummings' public freakouts, which are kind of a Cummings specialty, as anyone who saw his last film, 2018's Thunder Road, can attest. Cummings is a champion of DIY indie film, and if you'd like to hear more about that, go subscribe to the Demystified YouTube series and podcast from our friends at Studio Fest. They have a magnificent interview with him, coming soon, where he talks about how he gets his films made and how he makes money doing it. In this interview, we talk about some of my favorite subjects, including serial killers and the late Robert Forrester, who plays the head of the extremely beleaguered police department in Wolf of Snow Hollow. It's now available on demand and is absolutely perfect for Halloween. So Jim Cummings, welcome to Movie Maker Interviews. I absolutely loved The Wolf of Snow Hollow. If we can begin at the beginning, how did you first get into making films? Um, I started making movies out of college and I made a feature film that failed. I made a, a 73 minute movie that was just relatively boring. And I got all my friends to come down to New Orleans and shoot it. And um, I spent a year and a half editing it and it played in one film festival. And after that, I was like, I'm just a terrible filmmaker. I'll never, I'll never make it. And I'll, I should just like shelve these ideas that I have. But I was, I was writing screenplays the whole time and I was producing for friends of mine. And like some of my friends had made some like small viral successes on Vimeo. And so I was like producing and running Kickstarter campaigns and doing all that kind of stuff to help my buddies. And then after a long time, started getting taken seriously as a producer and I got a job at College Humor and it just became so much easier to get back into filmmaking where I was seeing people miss opportunities for jokes or drama. And I was just like, hey, maybe I should just, maybe I should just do it again. Maybe I'll just try it. And then that became a short film that I wrote on my drives to and from work uh, called The Thunder Road. And we shot that in a uh, single day in about six hours in a funeral home. And I rehearsed it for about two months beforehand. I have no training as an actor, as a film producer for many years, um, but I knew what good acting looked like. And I was like, all right, I'm just gonna do it a thousand times. And then that became the short film. The short film won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance 2016. I then spent a year and a half turning that into a feature screenplay and then running a Kickstarter campaign to finance that movie. And then we shot that with kind of the same crew that I was making short films with, um, a production company called Vanishing Angle. And then uh, as soon as that feature started to do really well, uh, it won the Grand Tree Prize at South by Southwest. It got into the Cannes Film Festival. We started pitching this idea for a werewolf movie, and it was a very different take on the werewolf uh, genre. And uh, I just really wanted to do it. I thought it was going to be so interesting. And then uh, Orion Pictures came in and said, yeah, we'll do that. That sounds ridiculous. And they got it. It was all like young executives. They were all you know, interested in the story and understood the humor and the the drama and the seriousness and the kind of like Hitchcock, uh, Fincher kind of stuff that we wanted to do and genre blending and they approved. And it was like, yeah, just pretend like you're greenlit and go start making a movie. And then very quickly we were making the movie. We like turned in a final draft in November, I want to say. And then by March we were shooting it. 
Yeah, you know, just from seeing the Orion logo at the beginning, it gave me like that Silence of the Lambs feeling. And it was just such a, yeah. like, you're in good hands feeling. It was great. Yeah, yeah, it was a dream. I can die happy. That's like uh, such a funny thing of like, oh yeah, I have that logo before one of my movies. That's crazy. <laughs> so you mentioned the Thunder, you mentioned with Thunder Road, you hadn't really been trained as an actor before, which is really surprising to me because Thunder Road is so built around your ability to monologue. I mean, you deliver at least the short that became the feature, you deliver this amazing monologue as a cop at his mother's funeral. It has like every emotion. How did you do that without having experience as an actor? I mean, did you just- Yeah. Um, I don't know. I had seen a lot of Pixar movies and like studied how they tell stories. And I'm a big fan of short stories in general. Hemingway and, um, and Faulkner are my favorites. Um, and so I was just like a student of the short form and narrative form. And, uh, and then I just started doing it out loud and it was making me laugh and making me cry. And I tried to cast a professional actor, but then every time we were like rehearsing it, it just came across as like super serious. It was never funny. And I was like, I think we can do both at the same time. I think like, this is kind of how I'm imagining it. It'll, it'll be. And then when I did it out loud uh, for the cinematographer and the producer, they were like, oh yeah, no dude, you, you're going to have to do it. That's, that's amazing. You got to do that. that let's do that. Um, and so then I very quickly became the lead actor in the thing, but yeah, no formal education and performance. Um, but I have this weird thing of like wanting to, um, to do something great. And like, I, I have this mania of making something that's impressive. And so although I don't have really any acting training, I rehearse it and do it a thousand times because of that. And because of those feelings of inadequacy that I'm not a real actor, it comes across as being a good actor in a funny way because I've done all the work and research. You also do something great in that movie and also in Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is you play a cop and there's something about you as a cop that just really works. What, how did you discover that you're a good cop? I, I just think it's really funny because it, it, the, the world of law enforcement is such a strange like testosterone cult where they have to feel the need to be um, professional at all times. And like, that is just so funny to me, the kind of like straight backed uh, performance of this facade of masculinity. And so being able to humiliate that and kind of like dip below the surface of that stuff is really funny to me. And also very serious of like, these people have so much stress in their lives and they're also having to put on this performance that they're all put together. And that is just so humorous. And, uh, and fun to perform and engaging. And I don't know, I, I just thought that it would be really funny to kind of humanize and humiliate these characters um, because I don't see that very often on film. You're also really good at blowing up, uh, which is something you yeah. get a lot. <laughs> so in real life, are you good at, are you a big blower upper or is that just something you think is funny? No, I'm not a big blower upper, but I love it when people like Nicolas Cage do it. And I just think it's so, interesting to watch like watching a public freak out is just so undeniably interesting to me of like a group of people and then somebody losing their mind and then also showing how their brain works through what they decide to say out loud and like all of their like secret demons that they've kept in the closet come out in these moments and um i just love that i find that to be some of the most interesting moments in characters lives and that's a dream as a filmmaker that's what you want to focus on and 
Yeah, no, I, I, I don't usually blow up. I'm much more specific when I'm, when I'm angry or when I'm like frustrated and needing to get something, I just, I'm able to cut to the wick of something and it becomes much more grating than someone raising their voice. It's terrible. <laughs> what? I can't imagine what that, so finding like the precise words that will cut somebody off at the knees or something. Yeah, it's, um, there was a moment where I was trying to fight to get a shot in the movie and everybody was, there's a moment where we had this thing planned of the camera moving from the back of the car towards the windshield to reveal the deer. And basically that was like one of the shots I was gonna be, the, I was the most interested in getting and like, oh, that's gonna be so cool. It's gonna feel like Zodiac or something and be like this cool reveal and it'd be a 360 inside of a car. It's like Children of the Men. Like this is what cinema is to me. And I was so pointed, we talked about it for months and months and months that we we're gonna get it. And then the night of the shoot, they basically said, uh, we're not gonna be able to get it, um, but that's okay, it's okay, it's a good thing. We can have, and so I basically have this like peanut gallery around me telling me that a worse shot is actually a better shot. And I was quiet and I listened the whole time. And then I said, yeah, 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 no, great. It'll be a B movie, that's great. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And just that one sentence, everybody was like, oh, oh my God, oh my God. And we ended up getting a really cool version of the shot that was closer to kind of what I was doing, but it's that kind of, awful uh, king of the hill cra crazy mentality of like ignoring everybody. And that was terrible because it's the point of the movie is like you have to listen to people. Like my, uh, my, I open the movie and my, one of the first lines my character says is I don't hear people. And then, you know, I'm on set not listening to people. It's terrible. <laughs> so you do find things within yourself that you can kind of blow out and make funnier. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, and also like that's the funniest thing you can do is like self-flagellation of just humiliating a character is often so endearing to watch because there is like something, somebody will see it and go, oh yeah, I've been there. Or like, yeah, that's that's very relatable to my life and the misery that I'm in. I don't know. It's like, I, yeah. I, I think that that's so important to do. I completely related to everything going wrong at the same time and just <laughs> not knowing who to be mad at or how to express yourself and trying to be generous <laughs> and your best self and you can't. Yeah. Uh, why werewolf? Um, I really, so I've been doing all this research about serial murder and violent crime and America and law enforcement and detective stuff and Zodiac killer and, you know, BTK and like all of this stuff. And it, that was the closest thing to a werewolf that I could find where like, a vampire is this guy who lives on the hill and kind of everybody knows that he's spooky and then he comes out and sucks blood, you know, every night of the week or whatever. It's a very, it's actually an innuendo about uh, female sexuality in Victorian England and then also sexually transmitted disease. So it's like a cautionary tale of like, if you go to bed with this stranger, you're going to be corrupted for the rest of your life. And that's what that whole, you know, uh, mythology of the vampire is. With the oh. werewolf, it is this thing about it could be anybody and you have to find it's a riddle of who this person is in the town and it's also about somebody who feels the need to do something once a month because of something that is out of their control and then they feel terribly ashamed about it and i just felt such relatability to modern audiences of like oh this is alcoholism this is somebody falling off the wagon and and so we wanted to create this that was like kind of the wedge into the story of like you could do something about like the Zodiac detective story while also saying something about an ongoing health crisis in America, like alcoholism um, and drug addiction. And I don't know, I, it just kind of, it, it just kind of all came together. I was thinking about it over a long period of time and then it, it kind of came to me all at once. Yeah. You know, I quit drinking eight years ago. I don't oh, know. Congrats. 
Yeah, are you are you in the in the club or however we? My my, my brother is a uh, ten year celebrated ten years this year, and oh. I'm kind of like off and on depending on like what month you ask me. But uh, okay. but no, I'm not in the program. Okay, yeah, I just asked because I think you handled it really well. Where he's not like this you know perfect saintly character, but he's also not this disaster. He's just this guy who's struggling, who gets it right sometimes and doesn't get it right sometimes, and there's humor in it. Like there's so much humor in how he's. Well, first, I think it's just a brilliant move as any writer to make your character a person who could relapse. And then yep. you have that kind of shorthand with the audience of, oh, he's drinking. Things have gotten bad. Yep. And also that's the thing of like Orson Welles planting a bomb in a trunk. And then for the next five minutes, everybody is terrified. When is the bomb going to go off? And that's a really valuable thing to a way to place an audience into a character's mindset and keep them on their edge. Um, but yeah, that, that, I mean, there's also so much comedy in that, like talking to my brother about AA meetings and kind of like people who get up and admit to stuff and talk about stuff that is part of their healing. But it's also like this person's talking about wanting to kill their ex-wife with a bulldozer and like, all of that stuff is just so insane, but it's also quiet. And then like the moment where I have this like meltdown of the AA and I get kicked out cause I'm drunk. And then the next meeting that I go to, I stand up and I go, so this one's going to be tough. <laughs> it's like, because it's the same group of people. And I'm just like, sorry, I'm going to have to claw an apology back through you guys. I'm so sorry for how I acted last time. And there's such rich comedy in that. I don't know. Another thing I noticed about this movie, a thing that people bring up in this podcast all the time is Jaws and don't show too much of the monster. Um, yeah. This is a movie where I feel like you totally yep. broke that rule and showed the monster. Had to. Why? Had to. So, so because of the end of the film, I don't want to give it away, no spoilers, but there is a reveal at the end of the film that it is very different from what you've been watching for the previous 70 minutes. Um, so the last like 15 to 20 minutes of the movie is a different movie than the one that you've been watching. And so with Jaws, the goal was to hide the shark so that by the end of the film, when you see it, it's like, oh, that's incredible. That is scary. And also hiding it keeps it tense. It's this wonderful thing. But with us, we had to bury the lead as much as possible. So we hid it as much as possible for the first crime scene. And then with the second crime with Hannah's death, we do the baller blowout wide shot of like this seven foot monster standing up so that the audience is playing with their allegiance of like, well, John's probably not right. This is clearly a werewolf. Um, and then that kind of like, I don't know, drags the audience. But we had to do that. We had to do that in order to thread the needle for the ending. So you mentioned that you've been researching serial killers. I kind of let that go yeah. by. I do feel like we're all constantly researching serial killers just because mm -hmm. they're interesting. Yep. Uh, but was there a particular reason you were getting deep into Zodiac and getting deep into BTK and stuff like that? Yeah, so I had read all of the works of John Douglas, basically all of his books for the previous, you know, five years, four years, something like that. And I think what interests me about it is it is a riddle that there is an answer and it's about helping people who are going through hell, which is like things that I just love. Um, so it is kind of this like perfect storm of things that I find incredibly interesting. Um, and then also, how could anybody do this stuff? It's so foreign to, to me as, a, as an empath, you know, it's a, a horrible thing that happens um, with men all over the planet. Um, but but I, I really did become fascinated with the idea that um, beliefs inspire behavior and you can analyze a crime scene. You can analyze the actions that were taking place on a crime scene to find out a whole lot about a person. And that 
was like behavioral psychology was incredibly interesting to me. And I realized like that's what I've been doing as a director for the last several years is trying to understand human behavior and the quirks and how, who are, who we are basically. Um, and with serial murder, that's kind of the, the, the biggest deep dive that you can find into human pathology. And I just find that so interesting where it's like, if you show up at a crime scene and someone has been murdered and there are bruises all over their face, that tells you that the killer knew the victim. And if the killer didn't, because it's a personal crime, it's not an impersonal crime. They're angry at that person's face and they take it out on their face rather than their body. Whereas if there are no bruisings on the face, they usually don't know the victim, which is so bizarre and so simple and obvious now that you know it, like that makes such sense. Um, if somebody is buried on the side of the road rather than dumped on the side of the road, that says that it's a personal crime. They wanted to make sure that the person was given a proper funeral rather than uh, a, a murder victim of uh, serial murder. Um, really interesting stuff of like being able to analyze uh, something so intensely that is so dark and scary, but be able to come away with real answers. And that's what I love about movies. Yeah, you know, this is kind of what I like about reading about serial killers because obviously you, I always have that fear of like if somebody finds my phone I'm gonna look like a total nutcase but like I'm not in any way none of us are pro serial killer okay of course mm -hmm. but you do kind of want to understand like what is the society that produced that or allowed that to happen like Ted Bundy is pretty clear where we we people were interested in him because he's good looking and let him get away with a lot of stuff that was it that was um, it yeah and then you wonder why this started in the 70s, like what was going on socially. And I've, I've come around to thinking more and more that this was like for these very psychologically damaged men, that this was a, possibly a response to greater equality in society. And these guys who are in a very gross way trying to sort of assert their masculinity. And I wonder if hmm. that's what you got into in this movie. So from my research, um, from my research, the things, so obviously it is a, it is a brain disorder. It is something where these people are um, sociopathic uh, um, nihilists or, um, and then people that have these sexual frustrations that they can't get out any other way. So like Berkowitz, the um, son of Sam killer, he, people were saying that he spoke to his dog and he heard voices in his head and all of that was bullshit. All of that was actually just covering for the fact that he was this incel because if you look at the crime scenes, um, each of the Lover's Lane's cars that were shot into, it was always the passenger side because that's where the woman sat traditionally. And in each case, he was just trying to take out his anger on women. Um, and also historically, this shit's been happening for much longer than the 1970s. Like from all of our research, the, the, like this has been an ongoing crisis. And the one thing that has prevented this stuff from happening are um, security cameras, uh, uh, DNA evidence, all of these things to catch people before they become a mass serial killer and instead catch them in the first two. Um, but no, I, I think that the, the main thing that does get these people to go out and do this stuff is this incredible negative self-image, uh, a lack of a functioning personality, an inadequacy, uh, uh, feelings of inadequacy, and then uh, sexual frustrations. And then there's something in their life that triggers them. They live with a mother who is over-controlling. They live in a, in a marriage that is over-controlling, and they go out and start fires or stab people. Um, it's crazy, but it's so interesting to me. I, I'm totally with you. And I think it's so interesting that you're able to take this like really serious interrogation of why this happens and make, you know, a movie that people will think about, 
but also a fun movie. Like it's not yeah. by any means like, oh, this is yeah, a painful watch. It's not at all. It's like the breeziest watch I've had. Yeah, it's not Mind Hunter. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's a slapstick comedy that has a lot of serial killer research in it, yeah. <laughs> um, how did you end up in Park City to shoot this? Is it because of your success at Sundance? Um, partially. I mean, I knew the area a lot better and I, like we loved spending time in Utah. We were already going to be there. So my buddy Danny Madden's film Beast Beast was premiering that year. And so, uh, uh, or no, no, sorry, Greener Grass was premiering that year, another film that we had made. And so we were going to, to we we're going there anyway. But then it was kind of a, a battle between uh, tax credits and tax incentives in the state of Utah or New York. And we were good. We might have shot it in upstate New York. We might have shot it in Utah. But then Ben and I drove out to Utah and just like walked around a couple of days and like went on a big like tour. I was like, yeah, no, we can shoot everything that we need between these three towns, 45 minutes outside of Park City. Let's just do that. And it was like, it, we just found these perfect places and the Utah Film Commission were just so helpful and so loving and like wanting to um, make sure that we found everything that we did. And they just became buddies. And so I was like, all right, yeah, let's shoot it in our backyard. Let's shoot it in Utah. Yeah, I know LA and New York people maybe only go to Sundance, um, but Utah is awesome. It's, it's, yeah. I resisted it my entire life as like a liberal from Los Angeles thinking it must be <laughs> awful, conservative, boring place. And it's great. It's beautiful. What were the yeah. other towns besides Park City? We shot in uh, a town called Colville, which is where all the police station stuff is. It was actually the the like the um, the uh, not the federal building. There's like a courthouse. It's called the Summit County Courthouse. And we walked in and we were like, "This could be everything in the police station." That's like forty percent of the script. Cool. We're gonna shoot the movie here, basically. And then there are two towns that are about 20 or 30 minutes away from there. It's called Camas, which is the larger town. And then there's a neighboring town called Samick, which is actually just Camas backwards. It's so small of a town, they just flipped the name. And so within those three towns, we were able to shoot, you know, 99% of the movie or whatever. And it was really cool. Ah, that's so cool. And it looks like <laughs> one, I believe you're the last film director who ever got to direct Robert Forrester. I think so. I think so. I think there's like varying accounts on that. I haven't talked to his family, but I know he did um, El Camino, the Breaking Bad feature. I don't know if he shot it before or after ours. I know that our movie is probably going to be the last one to come out with Robert in it, which is crazy to think about. He's excellent in it. And your dynamic with him is beautiful. What was it like to get to work with him? And did he tell you any funny stories or anything. I mean, I, it just struck me that he's not only made, you know, El Camino and he's made Jackie Brown, but he also, he did Alligator. I mean, he's done, yeah. like, he's done a B movie, which you're not. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. He, and he has a history in the genre as well. And was also, he wrote and directed uh, a film that he starred in. So he had already, like, walked in our shoes, which is crazy. Um, but no, he was just such a huge champion of mine from day one. He saw Thunder Road and then was like, oh yeah, I want to be in this guy's thing. Like he like read the script and loved it. It was about this dad who is having this health crisis that could, he couldn't talk about. And like that dynamic of the patriarch of a, of a you know, sheriff's department and then having to hide the fact that he's dying. And I think he, like, he, he sent the script to his manager and he was like, I want to do this movie. And his manager said, uh, Robert, this is a werewolf picture. And he goes, yeah, I don't really care about the monster stuff. It's the stuff in between that I really like. And that was kind of what he told us every day on set. Just like, let's make this father-son thing and like the police department thing, the movie, and then the wolf stuff will come in later. And like, that'll be its own thing. But he was a fucking champ, man. He was 
He was so funny. So uh, I, I actually don't have the best story about Robert. I have a couple of good ones, but Chloe East, who plays my daughter in the film, has the best story. She is such a cinephile and has seen basically every movie in the Criterion Collection, knows more about cinema than I do, which is crazy. Okay. She's 20 or whatever. Um, <laughs> but she, she goes, I sat down with Robert at lunch and I was such a fan because Jackie Brown and then she was like, do you have any movie suggestions? I'm like trying to build out my cue. I'm trying to learn as much about movies as possible. And he goes, uh, uh, have you seen the film Alligator? And she goes, no, I haven't. And he gave her a list of all of these movies to go and see. And it was only when she got home that she realized they were all Robert Forrester movies. Because <laughs> it was like, oh, those are the best movies you could find. Yeah, those are great. Oh, they're my favorites. That was Jim Cummings, writer, director, and star of the extremely enjoyable Wolf of Snow Hollow, now available on demand. For the second half of that interview, where he talks about how he broke into making films, and you can too, go subscribe to Demystified, the video and podcast series from our friends at Studio Fest. For more of what we do here, you can also visit moviemaker.com. And of course, we would love it if you subscribe to this podcast and through us some positive reviews. Thanks so much. We'll see you very soon. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker.